Uh, so my name's Dan. Uh, I lead the team here. And um, if you're a visitor, you're very welcome this morning. Um, thank you for, for giving up your Sunday morning to come and spend time with us. And uh, pray you're blessed. And um, yeah, at the end, there's a visitor's area. So grab a coffee from there and you don't have to queue with the rest of us. Um, so we uh, have started a series on the Sermon on the Mount. I um, kind of soft launched it last week. Um, and um, we are, over the next year, probably, um, going to be digging into this passage of Scripture. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to um, introduce it properly. <laughs> last week, I kind of framed it within the context of, of the book of Matthew. Um, we looked at what Jesus did in the first, in the three uh, sections just before in Matthew 4, three sections just before the Sermon on the Mount. And so this morning I want to introduce it fully and I want to look at three things that I think are really important for us to understand um, as we go on this journey through this passage together. So the first of these things is what is the Sermon on the Mount? The second, on this, the second thing is who is the Sermon on the Mount for? And the third thing is what is our response to the Sermon on the Mount? So if you've got your Bibles or your phones or your tablets, can I encourage you to turn to Matthew, and we're going to start actually in Matthew chapter 4, where we were last week. We're going to start at verse 23. Um, if you're new to the Bible, Matthew is about three quarters of the way through your Bible. It's at the beginning of the New Testament. Um, it's one of the four Gospels which uh, tell the stories of Jesus and what he did on this earth and what he taught. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to start, as I said, at verse 23. I'm reading in the New International Version. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, that was a region in Israel, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Keep reading into chapter 5. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying... And we're going to stop there um, because that's in a couple of weeks. But... <laughs> and I'm going to have to be really careful not to preach more than I need to this morning. Um, but... This, at its very simplest, is what the Sermon on the Mount is. It is Jesus sitting on a hillside teaching. It is no more complicated than that. And, and over the next three chapters, it's not very long, it's three chapters of Matthew, it's about 100 verses. If you read it from start to finish, you can read it in about 15 minutes at a fairly casual pace. Um, and during those three chapters, we read Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven. The first section we come to is known as the Beatitudes, which is a series of teachings about 
who is blessed, who is great in this kingdom of heaven. And we'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. Then Jesus opens up and he expands the teachings uh, from what's called the Torah. Now the Torah is the uh, Jewish holy book um, and it's the first five chapters of your Bible. So Genesis, books, books, not chapters, well done. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Those five books make up the Torah and so there's a lot of teaching in there that was given to a man called Moses um, and Jesus expands on this teaching. He, he, that's what he does, yeah. And then he, Jesus talks about prayer, and we, you'll remember, hopefully, that we spent last term looking at prayer together. The Lord's Prayer, that very famous prayer, is right in the middle of it with that line, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then Jesus talks about treasure. What is important in this kingdom of heaven? What is it important to have? What things should you value in the kingdom of heaven? And then he concludes the Sermon on the Mount with an assurance that the kingdom of heaven is both here right now and is yet to come. And if you've been around uh, Christian or church circles for, a num- for any better time, you'll know that uh, we often talk about the now and the not yet. The, the, the kingdom of heaven being in this place, we felt it this morning. We felt the presence of God. We've heard God speak through people. We've worshipped him. We've experienced something of the kingdom of heaven now, but it has not fully come. And so Jesus encourages us that the kingdom of heaven is both here and yet to come. And he talks about how we are to live in light of that. So the Sermon of the Mount is a collection of Jesus' teachings. And, and it's probably fair to say this was not the first time he had taught these things. These would have been the teachings that he would have been going around Galilee and the other areas teaching. They would have been, these, they would have been common to his teaching. But in this particular passage, it's all brought together and he sat on a hillside teaching to the crowd. Now I want to tell you a quick little story. When I was 21, so a couple of years ago, um, uh, if, you, if you're not familiar with, with uh, British culture and, and birthdays, 21 is one of those, meant to be one of those big kind of coming of age years. And um, my parents decided to buy me as a treat a Silverstone driving experience. Now, Silverstone is a motor racing circuit, and um, they bought me a driving experience, and I got to drive one of these cars. That's not me. Um, I have a picture somewhere, but we've moved house about four times since I did it um, in the last two years. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, and um, uh, so I had the opportunity to drive one of these. Um, and um, those that know me will know that I love my motorsport. I love particularly uh, this kind of single-seater, one-person in their car, motorsport. Uh, I love Formula One, which is the very top level. And um, at the age of 21, I was quite handy in a go-kart, in a little go-kart. And so I was really excited about having the opportunity to go to a proper racing circuit 
and uh, have a go. And not only was I very good on a go-kart, but I was excellent, and I'd won multiple world championships on my PlayStation. And, and so I had this view that I would turn up on the day and I would nail it. I would be supremely fast. I would, maybe there would be someone from a Formula One team who would think, we don't need Lewis Hamilton, look at him, he's great. And, um, and so I got all excited, Mate, you know, this is going to be great, I'm going to be racing people, I'm going to show everyone how great I am. And so I turn up on the day, and the first thing that happens is they say, yeah, you're not going on the big circuit, you get to go on this little training circuit, because you don't have a license. And immediately I'm a bit like, oh, I've been practicing on that circuit at home. <sighs> Rubbish. Um, and so we go into this briefing room, and we sit there, and a fairly grumpy old man starts to tell us all these rules about what you need to do when you get in one of these things, and, and how you need to behave on track. And he says things like, you are not to race. You are not here to race. A motor racing circuit, and I'm not here to race? You're not here to race. Don't try anything silly. Don't try and be better than you think you are. He proper lays it down. Um, if you spin the car, if you mess up, that's it. You're done. We'll come and get you. We'll hook you on the back of a truck. We'll put you in the garage. You're done. All right, okay. So I go and get in the car, and I strap in, and my head is full of these rules. All I can think about is these rules. I can't race. I can't do anything silly. If I mess up, they're going to kick me out. I'm going to look like a fool. And so I get in the car, and I start driving. And I am quite tense and quite tight. I'm quite tentative. In fact, I am what many people might call slow. Um, and I, 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 I'm driving around, and I'm struggling to get it in the right gear, and things just aren't going well. And every time I feel the car kind of twitch, I think, oh, don't mess up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be out of this. And um, I just wasn't enjoying it. I'm struggling there to enjoy it. Um, I got frustrated. I couldn't understand why everyone was passing me, why they were faster than me, what was going on. See, I think, looking back, that the rules had gotten to me. The rules had made me tighten up. The rules, these things that they laid down, had really affected how I was feeling and how I approached driving that car. Could this be the impression some of us have of the Sermon on the Mount? Could this be the impression we have? A sermon a collection of rules and regulations. After all, who really wants to read a sermon? To many of us, the very word sermon, it doesn't, it doesn't exactly fill us with excitement. You'll have noticed that Ruth didn't say this morning, Dan's going to come and bring the sermon this morning. She, she, she used the phrase, he's going to come bring the word of God. It sounds, sounds more exciting, doesn't it? So we, in this culture as well, the sermon, being, people being told what to do, we don't often refer to things as the sermon. We might say the talk, for example, or, or even the preach, but we, the word sermon has some negative connotations for some of us. So firstly, I think it's really important to notice that Matthew, in the writing of his gospel, never called it the Sermon on the Mount. 
He never called it the Sermon on the Mount. Those, that little title you find in your Bible is not written by Matthew. It's written by the people who put the Bible together, who translated it and put it together and put it into English to help us find that point in the Bible. Secondly, it's really important we understand that it's not just a collection of teaching. It's not just a collection of rules. There's a theologian called uh, John Stott who said this. He said, this is what the Sermon on the Mount is. He said, it is the closest thing we have to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered. For it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. It is the closest thing we have to a manifesto, to, a, to an outline of what Jesus wanted his followers in this kingdom of heaven to be and to do. And as I encouraged us last week, I believe the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, is an invitation to join with Jesus in this way of life, into a life in a different kingdom, one that is countercultural, one that looks different. And so maybe as one other author wrote, a better title to the Sermon on the Mount might be this, A Beginner's Guide to the Kingdom of Heaven. And we read as we read through this, this teaching that it is a kingdom. It's full of challenging teachings. But it's a kingdom that is amazing. It's a kingdom that welcomes people in. It's a kingdom... That will last forever. And this teaching would have been, it's challenging to us, but it would have been challenging particularly as well to the Jewish followers of the day. See, Jesus spends a lot of time repeating this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say. And he's referring to the teaching that they know that some of them have tried to live by for years. And he says, you have heard it said this, but I say, this is what it actually means. He instructs the people not to just settle for the bare minimum in their behavior, to tick a box. There were a lot of people who would just follow the rules of the Torah, follow those, those laws that have been set out, just to tick a box, just to say, if I do this, I'll be saved. If I do this, I can make my way uh, into eternal life. And Jesus says, don't, don't just settle for the bare minimum. Don't just do it to satisfy the religious people of the day. What he calls them to do is to go beyond the minimum, to go further, to be a radically different people. And this is where I think I have to be careful not to say too much today because we've got a whole series to do this. But let me just say this. Jesus' teachings cut to the heart of what the Torah or the Old Testament law is all about. He says this in chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He didn't come to get rid of the old. He didn't come to get rid of it. He came to redeem it. <laughs> he came to fulfill it. And his teachings throughout uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and in fact beyond the Sermon on the Mount, look at what God's intention was when he set this law out. 
They were not just a set of rules to follow, but they were a call to be a nation, to be a people, to be, a, to be different, set apart for the glory of God. A people that people would look at, a nation that people would look at and say, there's something different about them. That they might reveal the glory of God and the kingdom of heaven to other people. That is what the, the Old Testament law, that is what the Torah is all about. Being a people set apart for the glory of God. And Jesus is calling them back to this place. So who is the Sermon on the Mount for then? Well, Jesus came. He was a real man. He came 2,000 years ago, and he came to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, as you'll read about in the Old Testament, was a nation set apart by God. They were called by God, as I said, to be different, to stand out, to represent God's kingdom on earth. But the Israelites failed Time and time and time again. And they, they continue to be under oppression from different nations, different rulers. They get exiled into Babylon. They, um, they continue to have, have the Philistines come and they take over the land for a season. You can read about it as you, as you read through the Old Testament. You'll read about all these different times where they failed and they came under oppressive rules. And when Jesus arrives 2,000 years ago, they are once again under the oppression of a foreign army, a foreign leadership, and that leadership was the Roman Empire. And they are being oppressed. This is a nation. The Romans would come in and they would take everything good for themselves and they would leave very little for the people who were there. And so the Jewish leaders of the day responded to this oppression in a number of different ways. Some of them became even more religious. They said, well, this is clearly what's happening here is we're not, we're not obeying the rules right. Um, God has allowed the Romans to come because we're not obeying the rules right. So they got more and more and more uh, religious and dogmatic about the rules. They, they criticized people that weren't doing that. They... They just, they wouldn't let anything go by. If you read through uh, the Gospels, you'll read of times where they criticize Jesus' followers for disobeying these rules. Maybe they were having something to eat on a particular day. It's like, How do you allow them to work like that? Well, they're not working, they're eating. <laughs> but the Jewish leaders, some of them were, were legalistic and bogged down with the rules. Some decided the best thing to do was actually to cozy up to the Romans, to become mates with the Romans, to become pals with the Romans. Some of them would become uh, tax collectors and take money for the Romans and, 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 and became enemies of the people that they were surrounded by. And then there were others who became freedom fighters. They were known as the zealots, and, and we would probably call them terrorists today. They became, they, they, would, they, were, they would use violence to persuade people of their ways. But most people weren't like this. Most people didn't fall into these categories. See, most people were just trying to get on with their lives. Most people were just trying to go about their daily lives, 
barely hanging on. Many of them had had fields or land taken off them by the, the Romans and they were just trying to, they had to farm this land and then they had to give stuff, that, that, the produce of that to the Romans. Many of them were weak. Many of them were powerless. Sickness and poverty were rife. When it says Jesus went through the streets healing people, that's because there were many people that were sick. And hope was severely lacking. Hope amongst the Jewish people at this time was severely lacking. And these are the people, as I said, that Jesus goes to in Matthew 4. These are the people when he says he goes through the, the towns and the hill country preaching and speaking. These are the people he goes to. These are the people that come to him. And these are the people that as he goes up on the mountainside are surrounding him and that he speaks to in the Sermon on the Mount. The hurting, the broken, the marginalized, the powerless. This is who he comes to. And as we will see when we delve into the Beatitudes, it is these people who Jesus says will be great in the kingdom of heaven. See, the Sermon on the Mount is not written to leadership. It wasn't written to Caesar. It wasn't written to the king of Israel. It was written to the people who were stood on the sides. It wasn't, Jesus wasn't speaking to the wealthy. He wasn't speaking to the powerful. The Sermon on the Mount is not a 20-point thesis to convince the intellects. No, Jesus sits on the mountainside and talks to the normal people. To the people like you and me. And his opening line is this. To the people that have been downtrodden, to the people that are struggling, to the people who feel like they have no power, to the people who feel poor. His opening line is, in Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. That's what he's saying in that moment. Blessed are you. People who are simply trying to get through daily life. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. As I said, people like you and me. So Jesus sees us differently to how we see ourselves. We might see ourselves as powerless. We might see ourselves as down. We might see ourselves as weak. But in this moment, Jesus says to the people in front of him, he says, I see you. I see who my father created you to be. He called you to reign over, over the earth. Back in, Eden, in the Garden of Eden, it was people like you that I play, that my father placed to reign over this earth, to bring heaven to earth. I see in you unlimited potential. That's what Jesus is saying. Now come and follow me. But it's interesting, isn't it, if we read that verse 1 again, chapter 5, verse 1. It says, he sees the crowds, he went up the mountainside, and he sat down. And then it says this, 
his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. There are many people that listened to the Sermon on the Mount. There were many people stood in the crowd listening. But only some of them are his disciples. Only some of them have made the decision to come and follow me. And we don't know whether at this point there was the 12 that we read about uh, later on in the gospel or whether it was, uh, more, we, it was probably more than that. We read throughout the scripture that there was the 12 and then there was the 70. And, and it was probably more than just those 12, but his, they were people that had made the decision to come and follow Jesus, to give, as I said last week, to give their lives to sit under his teaching. And these are the people that Jesus is specifically teaching to at this moment. The crowds are there, but it says the disciples came to him and he started to teach them. These are the people who will see the kingdom of heaven come, not just at the end of times, but in their lives here on earth. And so this leads us to our third question What is our response to the Sermon on the Mount? We each have a decision to make as we go through this teaching. Am I a disciple of Jesus? Or am I going to sit in the crowd? Am I going to simply listen? Not along. That's a nice point. There's some nice moral teaching there. Or am I going to respond and change my life in light of what Jesus is teaching us? Now there are some who have tried to claim over the years that the Sermon on the Mount is a list of instructions that cannot possibly be followed. It's too hard. Jesus is setting the bar too high. But the Sermon on the Mount is bookended by these two statements. Let's look first of all, Matthew 5 Verse 19, so just after the Beatitudes, verse 19, it says this. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices these, practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then let's skip to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, to Matthew 7, verse 25. Or 24, I think it is, actually. Therefore, this is him ending the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man, wise man who built his house on the rock. Did you get that? Hear and put into practice. If it was just a bunch of teachings that we could never aspire to, Jesus would not have put that in there. (laughs) It's my conviction that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was not only setting out the way his followers should live, but that he was also convinced that it was possible. (laughs) That it was also, he was convinced it was possible for us to do it. Back to my story. So I was in that racing car expecting to be fast. And halfway through the session, we we have a little five-minute break and 
and they pull over and we take our helmets off and, and they bought us a little, some water to drink because it's quite thirsty work. And um, I had a little t- chat with the, the instructor, a uh, different, different instructor, one a little bit less grumpy than the first one. And this guy comes over and he, he chats to me. He says, are you doing all right? I said, well, I'm struggling with this and this. And so the first thing they do is they adjust my seat, which suddenly everything feels a bit better and I feel more comfortable. And he, and he shows me a couple of other things. And then he says to me, if you spin, we'll, we'll, we'll just come and turn you around. He said, if you're not doing anything stupid, if you just genuinely make a mistake, we'll just come and... Turn the car around. They don't weigh anything, those cars. And uh, he said, just go out and enjoy it. Just enjoy it. Just enjoy the thrill of putting your foot down and going from 0 to 60 in less than five seconds. And, and, and just enjoy it. And so I went out and I felt a lot more relaxed. And I enjoyed the second half of my experience. And so afterwards, we sat in this briefing room, we finish and they, they show all the times and I'm at the bottom. And they show all these times and, and one of the other instructors, he gets up and he says, I just want to explain the reason why we don't allow you to race these cars. Can you just put that picture up? He says, you see how the wheels are exposed? He said, it, if you hit the wheel of another car, you'll end up upside down. The two wheels will bang each other and you will literally catapult you or the other driver. And one or both of you will end up upside down. Now, I don't want to be upside down in one of those. He said, we don't allow you to race because it's not in your makeup. You haven't been trained to race. You don't have the instincts of a racer. So when those moments come and you get too close to each other, you don't know what to do. You don't know how to react to it. And if you get it wrong, you can get seriously hurt. And actually, we had to sign a document that said, if I get seriously hurt, it's not anyone else's fault, it's mine. Which, you know. See, the rules that I had found really restricting to start with were actually a framework to help me enjoy the experience, to actually have the most fulfilling time. But I had just taken them the wrong way. And as I sat there, I was just struck by how hard it was to drive one of them. And they're like the beginner's ones. And I reflected on the journey of some of my racing heroes that I know start racing in go-karts when they're at the age of five or six. And they start there and they spend literally every weekend, every waking moment they can on a racing circuit, honing their craft, practicing. They spend time on their own. They spend time in other races. They, they sacrifice time. They sacrifice money to develop their speed, to develop their skill, to develop that natural instinct. And it's only after a long time of training or practicing that they get their opportunity. And when they do, they have to be the best of the best of the best. There are only 20 guys that get to race in a Formula One car every year in the whole world. There's only 20. 
And in fact, since 1950, only 775 people have raced in it. And only 34 of them have ever won the world championship. You can't just turn up one day and expect to be fast. You can't just turn up one day and expect to be the best. You have to train. You have to practice. And so when Jesus sets out his teaching and invites people to come and follow me, what he's inviting us to is an everyday practice. We can't change overnight. Don't we wish we could? Wouldn't it be nice? But we can't. And as we go through this teaching, there'll be things which challenge you. And maybe one of those things might be, for example, generosity. Oh, I need to be more generous. Well, the first instinct you'll probably find is, oh, probably I need to give something to someone. I need to feel generous. And so you might, you might give some money away or something. But in that moment, you have not suddenly become a generous person. You have started the practice of generosity. And you only become a generous person by doing it again and again and again. And the same is true of the other things we'll, we'll look at. Things like anger. Oh, I'll deal with my anger today. Right, I'm not an angry person now. I dealt with it once. Didn't shout at the kids today. No, you need to practice it, practice it, practice it. Same is true of lust or worry or humility. It's constantly practicing. These are not one-moment fixes. But I don't believe Jesus expects that of us, or in fact asks that of us. So look at the story of Peter in Matthew 16. We don't have time to do it, but... In one moment, Jesus says to Peter, who do you say I am? And he says, you're the son of God. And he says, blessed are you, Peter. I'm going to build my church on you. And the next minute, Jesus says, I'm going to be taken to the cross. And Peter says, I won't let that happen. And Jesus' reply to Peter, get behind me, Satan. See, Peter was practicing, learning every day. He wasn't perfect. But Jesus saw enough to call out the gold in him. What Jesus is asking us to is a daily practice, a lifetime of practice. And this is why some writers prefer to use, rather than the term discipleship, they prefer to use the term apprenticeship. Because that talks of training daily. And he also calls us to practice in community. Jesus isn't preaching one-on-one, he's preaching to a community of disciples. So this can be our response to the Sermon on the Mount, to hear and put into practice. I just want to give a quick warning here, because if we're not careful, we start to think it's all about what I do. We are not trying to earn God's approval. We are not trying to gain our salvation by doing things. We are saved by grace alone. Jesus died on the cross. He defeated sin and death. He rose three days later. And it is through the cross and the power of the cross and giving our lives to Jesus that we are saved. It is not by working really hard. But we do have a choice. Do I just want the bare minimum? Do I just want to be saved? 
Or do I want to live in the richness of the kingdom of heaven now? Do I want to see his glory now? Do I want to experience his presence now? Do I want to be part of seeing the kingdom of heaven come in this place and in the surrounding area now? And to see that, we have to make a choice to daily repent, to daily turn up, and to daily commit to a life of practicing the way of Jesus. A way that he helps us to do. See, it's not just about practice. Jesus is with us always. And he sends his Holy Spirit. John 14, this is just at the end of Jesus' ministry in one of the other Gospels. John 14, verses 16 and 17 says this. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever the spirit of truth. Jesus sends his Holy Spirit because practicing the way of, the Je- of Jesus isn't just to strive. It's not the harder I work, the better it is. It's working with the Holy Spirit, allowing him to speak, to challenge, to correct, to change us. We need him. So, what is the Sermon on the Mount? It is a beginner's guide to the kingdom of heaven. Who is it for? You and me. Ordinary people. It's for all of us. And what is our response? Well, you get to decide. (laughs) Will I be in the crowd? Will I sit under the discipleship of Jesus? Will I choose to follow him daily, to practice all that he teaches, knowing that he has promised that he will be with us even to the end of the age? Why don't we stand if you're able? There's no big response this morning. Just uh, encourage you this week just to spend some time just saying, what, what is my response to this? But we know he's with us every day, helping us. So why don't I just pray and then the guy's going to lead us in a song. Jesus, God, first of all, we just thank you for your grace. We thank you for your grace and your unfailing love, that you loved us first. You saw us and you called us into this amazing kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, I thank you. Don't, 
you lay all this teaching out before us, you lay all these things before us, but you don't call us to strive, but you come with us on the journey. And you send your Holy Spirit to be with us. So God, right now, I just ask for your Holy Spirit to come. Would you come and minister to each of us? Lord God, and I pray, Lord, as we embark on this journey, Lord God, that you would challenge us, that you would inspire us, that you would encourage us. Lord God, and that you would shape us to be more and more and more like you. Lord God, that we would be recognisable, not as looking like everyone else, but as looking, looking like something different. Looking like the people of God. God, we thank you for your presence. We thank you you are with us on this journey, God. And we say, God, we need you, Lord. Amen.